Okay, here we go. Welcome to Adventure's first teaching series of 2021, the original Big Ten. All right, let's get into the Ten Commandments here. So remember, in order to be an action that is commanded by or prohibited by the Ten Commandments, it has to be fundamental to making and preserving a free civilization, right? That was the mission of the Ten Commandments. These commandments were the framework for a bunch of people who had been slaves for generations to get out, establish a free nation, and then maintain the freedom of that nation. Now, for example, things had to be required for that purpose. So, as important as it might have been when the Ten Commandments was given, um, as important as an ox cart might have been when the Ten Commandments were given, because you had two million people leaving captivity, transporting their stuff and a bunch of loot across the desert, which they ended up crossing that desert for 40 years before crossing into the promised land. As important as the ox carts were to making that move, there were no commands in the Ten Commandments. Not once does it say, you must drive your ox cart responsibly. (laughs) All right, now why? Because a society, a society can survive poorly driven ox carts, right? Now, honestly, some of their descendants live in our area and still poorly drive their ox carts on Elmore and 53rd frequently, right? And occasionally Brady. If they're doing it on Brady, they're lost. Or they're going down to pay a fine. Um, They're a nuisance, but no society ever collapsed because of poorly driven ox carts. However, if in that society there is a contempt for truth, if people feel comfortable testifying falsely inside of a courtroom, there can be no justice. And if there is no hope of justice... There can be no free, no civilized society because the vulnerable will always suffer at the hands of those who can influence the court against them. And that's the very opposite of a just and stable society. Now, follow with me in your notes. Let's lay the case here. Introduction. Evil always begins with a lie. Evil always begins with a lie. Let's go all the way back to the very first introduction we see in Scripture. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where Satan comes in, takes on the form of a serpent. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest. By the way, so when it says shrewdest, the Hebrew says most artfully cunning. That's an interesting description, isn't it? Most artfully cunning. Now, that makes sense. Some, some Jewish scholars believe that Satan or Lucifer was his name when he was an angel, that Lucifer was in charge of crafting the worship in heaven. So it would make sense that Satan would pervert his gift of worship 
into a gift of manipulation, doesn't it? This makes perfect sense. All right. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, now watch this. I'm going to have you circle the word. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from, circle this word, any of the trees in the garden? Is that what God said? No, that's not even close to what God said. Watch this. Let's go back to see what God said. Genesis 2. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat, you may freely eat the fruit of how many trees in the garden? Every tree except just one. From one single tree. Don't eat from this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen, virtually all great societal evils, whether the Crusades, whether African slavery, whether racism, whether communism, whether Nazism, whether anti-Semitism, whether even, you know, abortion, has been based on false testimony, often combined with hate. I mean, think about this. This is kind of a hard thing to get your brain around. But those people who have bought in to those evil isms, those people who have bought into the false testimony, maybe they were slave traders, maybe they were concentration camp guards, whatever, have all been people who were loved by their mother, who had family, who loved them, who were compassionate to their friends in their daily lives, who loved, hugged, kissed, and doted on their children and on their grandchildren, who had pets they cared for. I mean, the home movies of Adolf Hitler with his dog Blondie could be filmed by any pet owner in the world. And a lot of them even went to church regularly. But they believed a false testimony. And their belief in that deception allowed them to participate in a great evil. Slavery was made possible in large part by the lie that certain races are inferior to other races. And let's even go back to African slavery. In Africa, the slaves were captured by guess who? Africans who believed that the other people were darker or believed that the other people were not as intelligent. So they were capturing other blacks and then selling them to Europeans, believing they weren't the same. Totalitarianism is based on the lie that government makes everyone's decisions in their own best interest, that what government does for you is better than what you can do for you. The Holocaust would not have been possible without tens of millions of people believing the lie that Jews were subhuman. Listen, there's only so much can be done by individual sociopaths, individual sadists. I mean, think Ted Bundy, think Jeffrey Dahmer, think Charles Manson, for crying out loud. Think individual 9-11 terrorists. There's a limit to what those kind of people can actually do. But in order to murder millions, massive numbers of normal people, even otherwise morally decent people, the kind of people that if you saw them come to the house next door in a U-Haul truck and you got to meet them, you would think, finally, the neighborhood's getting upgraded. 
These are good people. Those people have to believe the lies. In the box there. Mass evil is committed not because large numbers of people seek to be evil, but because they believe the convincing lies that what is evil is actually good. They're just told over and over and over until they believe it. Marcel Gauchet, a French historian, philosopher, sociologist, not a Christ follower. If you speak French, he's got a lot of, got a lot of uh, videos on YouTube. Um, famous guy in Europe. Wrote a book called The Disenchantment of the World, A Political History of Religion. And he makes the case that the secular Western culture, which we have now, came from the phasing out, the intentional phasing out, of the Christian Western culture. For example, for four years in the 1850s, Karl Marx was a regular columnist in a, in a major New York City newspaper. He was incredibly influential, had a massive following. He, main, he maintained correspondence with American presidents, beginning with Abraham Lincoln, all the way up through Chester Arthur. They all talked to him. Yes, we had a president named Chester Arthur. He was the 21st president. He greatly influenced, not Chester, because you don't even know who he is, Marx, <laughs> greatly influenced East Coast political people and East Coast academics. See, what Marx sought to do was the works of Christ without Christ. That's what he sought to do. And despite the very public evils, despite the very public wreckage and the catastrophic failures of socialism and communism over the past hundred years, the political classes of the West, the academia of the West, still attempt to follow that same false testimony down that same path. People promote the false testimony that somehow the secular Western culture does a better job than did the Christian West of educating people, caring for the sick, caring for the poor, caring for the orphaned, caring for the aged, never mind the fact that 95% of the hospitals in the world were started by Christians. Never mind that the colleges and the universities around the world were started by Christians. See, key to phasing out Christianity in the West, in the United States also, was the taking over of higher education. Higher education was previously something that was handled by Christians. Listen to this. The Ivy League schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Columbia, William and Mary, Rutgers, Brown, all began as Bible colleges and seminaries for preparing pastors to evangelize in the new world. Now, they're operated as secular organizations that openly disparage, criticize, and mock a Christian worldview. Iowa's own Drake University was started as a means of training pastors and business leaders for the westward expansion of the United States. Last time I was able to check, 
There is absolutely not a single person in their religion department who believes in the lordship of Jesus Christ or the resurrection of Christ. Now, let's take this. Let's go back to the Ten Commandments. Let me show you what's happened. So the secular West now has argued away or legislated away all the commandments dealing with man's relationship to God. You're not allowed to pray in school, right? Teachers are discouraged from having Bibles in school. The Sabbath commandment has been successfully negated by taxes and living costs, forcing families to work, in many cases, seven days a week just to survive. The commandments about relating to one another personally have been taken over by secular concerns. The obligation to honor your parents has been taken over by Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth. The commandment to not murder has been corrupted by the courts and applied with great disparity based on race, income, family connections, or political affiliation. The commandment about adultery has been nullified by no-fault divorce, even though almost all individuals object to their spouse committing adultery, right? And by doing that, they have wrecked the family. And in wrecking the family, they have actually wrecked the common basic building block of a stable society. The family, its purpose has been legally destroyed. The commandment against theft has become very political rather than moral, with politicians being among the chief of those who thieve. Right? They approve of many kinds of theft, make them legal, while overlooking other forms of theft as free speech or the application of social justice. And the Ten Commandments have been removed from public property so nobody can see them and be reminded anymore. All right, that brings us to the Ninth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The old language that a lot of us memorize these in. I'm going to have you a circle and underline in each of these two verses. All right, here we go. Thou shalt not bear false what? Circle witness, and then just underline to the end. That phrase is important. We'll come back to it. Against thy neighbor. All right, let's read from the newer translation. You must not what? Testify. Circle that one, and then underline to the end. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. In other words, you are not to give against your neighbor an untrue testimony. See, that human tendency to deceive and lie on a regular base, basis is so well known inside of our culture that it is accepted and we just know what's happening, but we just pretend not to see it, right? Right? Hey, man, let's go to supper sometime. Oh, dude, I would love that. You look fantastic today. Love your hair. Right? Oh, I'm so sorry I was late for work today. Traffic was terrible. Our culture. Man, we have so many songs about dishonesty. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies, right? <laughs> Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so what? Untrue. We even have TV shows that are all based on lies. 
pretty little? Liars. Oh. Or my favorite show about lying. Friends. A show which, by the way, includes lying to your friends as a subplot of almost every episode. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy, the stuff. You say, oh, my friends don't lie to me and I don't lie to them. University of Massachusetts psychologist Robert Feldman has studied lying for more than a decade and his research, some very interesting conclusions, most shocking is that, listen to this, 60% of people lie during a typical 10-minute conversation and average one lie every three minutes. That is true. <laughs> so when you're going to sit down and have a conversation with someone, the best thing to do is set, your, set the little stopwatch on your phone for 2 minutes and 59 seconds. And then end the conversation before they get to three minutes. So let's break down, let's break down this commandment. Number one, this command prohibits lying or giving false testimony or what you and I know legally as perjury in court. Now I think this one's really pretty obvious because it has the word witness and the word testify, which those are obviously legal, legal terms. Um, and it becomes obvious from the overall context that it's addressing perjury. It's addressing false testimony in court. Now let me say this again. If people testify falsely in a courtroom, there can be no justice. And without justice, there can be no free society. Now that phrase against your neighbor, clearly that must mean something that's not quite as obvious as we think. Or it would just simply say, don't bear false testimony. So what's it mean against your neighbor? Next box there. It means to knowingly state something that is false and to the detriment. It has a negative effect on your neighbor. So what this verse is telling us is do not deny justice to the people who are around you. Now, in addition to straight up prohibiting perjury, so when you go to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is like a big commentary explaining out the subtleties of the Ten Commandments and how to apply them. Um, and it actually gives checks and balances on this false testimony, on this perjury. And I want to give you these three things, because I think these are kind of enlightening. Here's the first one. Here's the first check and balance. A, multiple witnesses were required. That was the first thing. Multiple witnesses were required. Now, think about this. A few years back, there was a young gal who claimed she had been raped by an entire lacrosse team, right? Remember that? And then what, what happened with that case? Those young men, their lives were destroyed, and then it came out that she had lied. She'd made it all up. All right? There was only one witness in that. Never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. Now, today that death might be death of a reputation for us, right? There must always be, how many? Two or three witnesses. Why? Because it's hard to lie when you've got two or three people testifying about the same thing. One of them will always break. <laughs> One of them will always mess up. The testimony's easy. 
to balance out that way. The facts are much easier to come across when there's more than one person. All right? Here's another check and balance that gave B. A false witness was at risk. So a false witness, now that young gal who testified against that whole team, there were a lot of cries from people saying, you know what, whatever their sentence should have been, she should be given that sentence for falsely wrecking their lives. Watch this, Deuteronomy 19. The judges must investigate the case thoroughly. If the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose on the accuser what? The sentence he attended for the other person. So if you lied and got busted, guess what happened? All right, here's the third check and balance. This involved capital punishment. A witness had an obligation in capital cases. So capital case would be where a person would be put to death based on testimony. Deuteronomy 17.7, here's the balance. The witness must throw the first stones. Does that sound familiar? Remember John chapter 8? Where they caught that woman in the act of adultery? Remember that? Always fascinating to me that they only brought her. Far, I mean, you know, far as I'm aware, it takes two people to commit adultery. And if you catch one, there has to be a second one there. So it becomes real obvious that this chick was set up. Somebody baited her in. And probably somebody in that crowd baited her in. And then they came in and they raided her. Remember, so they accused her of adultery, and she was clearly guilty of it. What they were doing was they trapped her in an attempt to trap Jesus, right? Jesus springs the trap on them. Remember what he said? John 8, 7. All right. Man, I would have loved to hear him say this, because my guess is Jesus is being really sarcastic. Um, we like to read like he's being innocent, like he doesn't know. Oh, man, Jesus was so sarcastic. Um, and Paul took it to a whole new level. Um, all right, watch this. All right, saying, yeah, she's worthy of death. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Now, here's what happened with those guys. They knew that all their own testimonies were false. And when the truth finally came out, because eventually it would come out, someone would give a deathbed confession or something, right? It would come out that when it came out, all those who testified against her would be put to death for putting her to death. Woof. Think that'll clear a room or an alley? <laughs> Pretty quick. Okay, let's move on. So if that command, though, is concerned only with court, it would have said, in court. But the wording clearly refers in general. I mean, not only truth in the courtroom, but truth in general. All right, so that comes to number two. This command also prohibits lying outside of court. And again, we're talking about, we're talking about lying, we're talking about knowing, knowingly stating something that is false and to the detriment of someone else. By the way, that could be gossip against a coworker. It could be spreading fake news. Hmm. That's really on everybody's minds, right? Because of the public events of the past 12 months, whether it's the virus or the election. Most everybody on social media has or has read, believed, 
or shared false news and violated this commandment over the past 12 months. Obedience to this commandment would have stopped a lot of that. But no, God's people jumped right on in there and wrestled with the skunks. Or my grandpa, I got sprayed by a skunk when I was a kid. We jumped over a fence hunting a skunk and we didn't realize he was right where we jumped over the fence. Yeah. And I remember asking Grandpa about why didn't one of his dogs kill that skunk. And he said, because my dogs can kill the skunk any day of the week, but it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. It's not worth trying to correct everything you see on social media. Scroll on. All right. Let's break this down a little bit further. A. There is a subtle distinction here that we need to make. All false testimony is lying, but not all lying is false testimony. It's real important you understand that false, that, that simple difference that plays out here. For example, is it immoral for me to tell my wife, on your birthday, hon, don't plan anything that night because we've got some errands to run and then we'll go see a movie afterwards. But I have secretly planned for her to have a surprise birthday party with all of her friends gathered around. Did I lie to her? Absolutely I lied to her. Because <laughs> that woman has got a, she got a nose on her like a blood dog. Or like a bloodhound. She can spot anything from miles away. Right? So... I lied to her so I could get her to a surprise party, but is that immoral? No, and at the, risk of, at the risk of confusing some of you, this commandment is not about all lying. Um, let me go down a rabbit hole with you for a second. <laughs> Again, a difference between bearing false witness and lying. Generally, I'm going to tell you I'm against lying. But for reasons incomprehensible to me, there have been brilliant, well-known Christian figures who condemned all lies, even the birthday party lie, as an equally evil and immoral lie. St. Augustine, probably the most famous of the church fathers, except maybe here where we have St. Ambrose. What am I thinking? And anyways, okay. St. Augustine believe that lying, even to save someone's life, was unjustifiable. Of course, he believed every time you sinned, you had to go confess it because you were lost until you confessed it again. The most famous German philosopher, a guy by the name of Immanuel Kant, echoed Augustine's view and suggested it would be, if a, if a murderer came to your house looking for your mom, and your mom's hiding upstairs. And the murderer catches you outside in the yard and says, is your mother in the house? I'm here to murder her into little pieces. You would have to say, yes, she is. <laughs> and if the murderer said, is she upstairs hiding in her bedroom closet? And is her room at the top of the stairs to the right? Kant says, you would be condemned to hell unless you answered... Yes, she is. Now, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites were getting ready to enter the promised land. So they're on the edge of the promised land. They're, well, they're in, just come inside the edge of the promised land, and they're approaching the fortress city of Jericho. 
And so Joshua says, we're going to send two spies in. They're going to learn how this thing works. They're going to draw a map of the place, tell us where all the defenses are, blah, blah, blah. So two of the spies go in. Now, something about the Hebrews, they were very out of the local style. So when they walked in, believe me, every city and, and, and tribe in the promised land knew where the Israelites were because they were terrifying everybody. And so some, some people who are watching the gates see these two spies come in. They go, Israelites, bad news, tell king. <laughs> so these guys realize they're being tracked. And so they go, they're going down a dark alley, and they find a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Now, you know by nature what prostitutes do. I don't have to go very far into that, do I? Thank you, Kristen. All right, so they look at her and they say, can you hide us? Now, I can imagine Rahab going, eh, for a price. <laughs> It'll cost you. So she takes them in, which nobody thinks anything about. That's what she did for a living was take guys in. So she took them in. The king sent somebody to the house to say, you got those two guys? Now, she takes them upstairs and hides them on the roof in some of the plants she was drying up there. So she hides them. So the king now comes and orders, orders her to bring out the spies. Joshua chapter 2, verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, she's responding to the king, yes, the men were here earlier, but I don't know where they were from, or I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Just like an episode of Cops right there. <laughs> now, here, underline verse 6. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. Now, verse 7. So, the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. Listen, she lied to preserve their lives from evil. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 cont excuse me, contains what we call the hall of faith. And what it does is it lists down through history the people whom God used and who, whose righteousness was demonstrated by their actions. And I want to draw your attention to one particular entry. Now remember, Augustine and Kant would say that she, what she did was wrong. Hebrews 11. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. Why? For she had given a friendly welcome. I think she anticipated when it started to be friendlier than it was. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Listen, her friendly welcome was she took them in, she hid them, and she lied to the king to preserve them from evil. Listen, those who argue that lying to save a person's life is always wrong have got to explain why rape, torture, and murder of innocent men, women, and children is preferable to deceiving evil in order to save them. Listen, contrary to St. Augustine or Immanuel Kant, I would suggest in your notes there, righteousness never requires us to participate in the deeds of evil in order to remain righteous. I think Augustine and Kant got it wrong. 
big time wrong. The next thing, B, lying should never become a part of our character. Right? You're not saving people's lives every day when you tell a lie, right? When you're late for work and you lie about the traffic, nobody's getting saved there. <laughs> nobody's life is being preserved. In fact, if you'd have just got up a little earlier and left a little earlier, other people's lives would have not been in danger while you were hurrying. But have you ever known somebody who just lies to tell lies? You got, they just lie all the time. I mean, they lie about things they don't even need to lie about. And you know they're lying, but you go, oh, yeah, wow. <laughs> right? You just don't have the energy anymore to call them out on it. But see, if lying becomes a part of your regular life, if it's part of how you interact with people, you wreck those relationships eventually. Because eventually people don't want to talk to you and they can't take you seriously. Remember the little boy who cried wolf? That's not in the Bible, but it's given us a real-life application. Watch this from Ephesians 4. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature. Now watch, he's going to describe the old sinful nature here in a minute. And your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and what? Deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God. Does God lie? No. Truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we're all parts of the same body. Colossians. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off all your old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. 1 Peter 2.1. Rid yourselves then of all evil. No more lying. See, a willingness to just lie as a part of your repertoire and normal conversation is not the trait of following Jesus Christ. We need to bring our behaviors into line with what our spiritual obligations are. All right, let's wrap this up. So as Christ followers, you and I know from reading the Gospels, from watching the life of Jesus, we know the importance of goodness. We know the importance of mercy. We know the importance of compassion. We know the importance of truth-telling. We know that those are key values in the personal realm. But I want to suggest to you that in the societal realm, telling truth is equal or maybe even more important. In fact, while there are so many different important values in society, truth may be the most important thing in a society. Because again, if people testify falsely in a courtroom, there can be no justice. And without justice, there can be no free society. If people lie as a quality of their life, there can be no interpersonal trust. If there's no interpersonal trust, there can be no stability between people. There can be no stability between family members. And without family stability, there can be no free society. There can be no stable nation. Listen, it's important that as Christ followers, we emulate Jesus Christ. Because as the individual goes, so goes the nation. When you stop right now and you look around and go, what in the world is wrong with our nation? What has happened? The first place you need to start, go into your bathroom and look at the person in the mirror and adjust your life to following Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to, to study 
these basic commands that you gave to the Israelites. And Father, we thank you that they are just as relevant today as they were when they were given. Now, Father, we just ask that you help each of us to be continually looking into our own lives, not blaming everything on what's going on around us, not blaming everything on someone else, but Father, help us to look and take responsibility where we have failed to keep these ten. Father, give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Give us your wisdom through your word and through your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.